Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our sermon series, asking the question, what did Jesus accomplish by dying on the cross? And as Aaron mentioned, we will be starting a new sermon series on the 11th of September. So for just the next few weeks, we'll be continuing to ask this question. So I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And in particular, the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. So again, we have been asking this question, what did Jesus accomplish by dying on the cross? And here are some of, if you've been with us, this will be review. If you're joining us now, uh, this will be a recap. But here are some of the answers that we discovered from the Bible itself. So representation, Jesus died on the cross as our representative. By nature, Adam is our representative. But by grace, Jesus is our representative. So his life is our life. His death is our death. Representation. Reconciliation. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us and even all of creation to God. We are created to be friends with God. But now we are estranged. And the cross of Jesus brings reconciliation. But also justification. Jesus died on the cross to bring justification because of his death. God's verdict over us is not only not guilty, but actually righteous. We can stand righteous before God because of justification. Also substitution. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. He bears our sins and its curse, not just for us, but instead of us. But also champion. Jesus died on the cross to bring victory over sin, over Satan, over death. He is champion. He is champion, not in spite of his death, but precisely because of his death. Christus victor, Latin for Christ, the victor, Christ, the champion. And then redemption. Jesus died on the cross to bring redemption. That's the price that must be paid for freedom from bondage. And then propitiation. Jesus died on the cross as a propitiation. That is a mouthful. Amen. That is a huge mouthful. But what it means is like the blood. We talked about this last week. Poured out on the mercy seat of the tabernacle. Jesus' death enables a holy God to draw near and to stay near his people forever. Vindication. Jesus died on the cross to vindicate his people on the last day. Imitation. Jesus died on the cross not just to save us, but also to shape us. So we pick up the cross daily. Not to save ourselves and not to save others. That's Jesus' work. But we pick up our own cross because we are saved. We serve others to see them flourish. Well, all of these things are facets of the glorious cross of Jesus. And we need them all. But how can we possibly keep them all together? We could probably draw a diagram. Someone out there could probably come up with a really helpful acronym. Anybody? <laughs> but here's the thing. God gives us something better. It's called 
the Exodus. All right? In the second book of our Bible, we have what's called the Exodus. We read about how God rescued his people from dehumanizing slavery in the land of Egypt. And this book is called Exodus because that is precisely what God does. He creates an exodus, a mass departure of his people, along with a mixed multitude, the text says, of other folks as well. And so in this act of God, this act of God becomes for Israel the defining moment, really the defining moment of their identity, so that when Jesus comes onto the scene as Israel's Messiah and true king, He actually defines his saving work on the cross in terms of the Exodus. So, for instance, there's an interesting detail in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses, who knew a thing about the Exodus, as we will see, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus describes his impending cross, what he's heading to in Jerusalem, the cross itself. He calls it my Exodus. A lot of our English translations will say, my departure. But that is a huge, big bummer because we miss out on what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, in Greek, the text says, my exodus. And so he's clearly connecting his cross to the exodus. And so it should be no surprise that all that Jesus accomplishes on the cross, all the things that we heard just described is reflected in some way in shadow form in the Exodus. In fact, according to the authors Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts, the Exodus is the way that all the various facets of the cross can find their home. They write, the Exodus story provides a wonderful framework to think about how all the different atonement imagery fits together. It's a story of redemption from slavery involving blood sacrifice, a substitute, liberation, Reconciliation with God, a great victory, vindication through faith, union with God, adoption, priesthood, Passover, baptism, kingdom, and probably others, all of which, of course, also take place through the cross. And as such, the Exodus story helps us grasp how these many descriptions of what Christ has done for us can all be true without needing them to be played off of each other. Well, this morning we will be focusing on a key moment in the Exodus called the Passover. And we will be asking, what does the Passover tell us about the cross of Jesus? Last week I recommended a commentary to you all on the book of Leviticus. This week let me recommend to you one on the book of Exodus by Christopher J.H. Wright. In this morning's message, I'm indebted to so many helpful insights from Chris Wright. But before we get started... Let's read. This is God's word, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And the household is, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then shall, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, quickly. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Pass over. Pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So it's pivoting a bit to a, a feast of unleavened bread. Verse 15. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. If anyone eat what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day for that whole week, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But whatever, but what anyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month of the 14th day, the first month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month that evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through, strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to that land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say... It is the Passover of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And all the people bowed their heads in worship. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here collected this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would actually see Jesus. That you would bridge the gap between this ancient text 
in our contemporary lives. And Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes so that we would not just learn new information this morning, but that we would actually see the beauty of Jesus and worship him. That our hearts would be more glad in Jesus at the end of this time than it was at the beginning of this time. We ask this in his name. Amen. In my family, uh, we love to ride bikes. And so a couple of summer ago, my two older kids spent almost every day riding their bikes to a place called Tarpy Woods. And in this woods, there are some rough trails, great trails for mountain bikes. But only one of their bikes was a true mountain bike. Which meant that by the end of the summer, our Trek road bike became unrideable. You might be thinking, but Trek makes great bikes, Joe. What's going on? They do make great bikes. But when you use a Trek road bike for a mountain bike, it doesn't matter how well built it is. It will break down. Why? Because that's not what it was made for. It was made for smooth pavement. That's what it was made for. Well, this sad story of sort of our broke down Trek bike is also a parable of freedom. In one sense, that Trek road bike was free from the constraints of pavement. But in a more real way, in another more important sense, that bike was not free at all. It was getting destroyed. Some have said that freedom is not so much the removal of constraints as the willing embrace of the right constraints. I love poetry. And most of my favorite poetry is poetry that is gloriously constrained by meter by rhyme, by formal structure. So the poet Mary Oliver, she calls these things rules for the dance. In her book on poetry, she calls these things rules for the dance. In the best poetry, the constraints of meter and a form actually can liberate Rules for the dance. It's like dancing. Anybody dance out there? Anybody know like formal dance forms? Then you know what makes dancing so liberating is the rhythm and actually the form of the dance. Well, folks smarter than me have pointed out that in a secular age that we're all living in, we have a half-baked understanding of freedom. We tend to think of it only as freedom from and not freedom to. So our concepts of freedom are not really freeing at all. Listen to how Roberts and Wilson express this phenomenon in their book. It's called Echoes of Exodus. They write, no matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations and oppression, We still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. So we get free from boredom and fall into slavery of distraction. We pursue liberty from prohibitions and fall into bondage of addictions. True freedom, they write, is more complicated than it looks. Well, if true freedom is more complicated than it looks, then where do we go for a full-baked version of freedom? Well, those authors recommend we look at the Exodus, and I agree. 
The people of Israel were not free to be who God made them to be. And they were not free to worship the true God who they were designed to worship in all of his image bearers across the world. See, they needed liberated, not just from, but to. They needed liberated, not just from Pharaoh, but to the Lord. And so right away, we see that the path to true freedom is not just freedom from fill in the blank, but also freedom to the Lord in his good ways. That is true freedom. And this morning, in particular, we will see that the only pathway to true freedom is indeed through the Passover. How so? Well, in three ways I want to look at this morning. By giving us a true identity, a true security, and a true purpose. So I want to first look at identity. The Passover gives us a true identity. After generations of body and soul crushing slavery, God pulls them out and gives them a true identity. Their identity as slaves of Pharaoh was false. Their identity, though, as of the Lord is true. And they, the Lord gives them this true identity. And we see hints of this true identity in chapter 12, which we read together. First, by giving them a true calendar. A true way to keep time. So look at verse 2. The text says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is a new beginning. Quote, it shall be the first month of the year for you. This is their fresh start. They kept time up to this point by the oppressive Egyptian regime. God in His grace gives them a new way to keep time. How we keep time actually says a lot about us. Have you ever thought about that? How we keep time says a lot about us. If you want to know about a society, you would do well to look at their calendar. How they order time. So it's the year 2022. Am I right on that? Yes. It's the year 2022. That's roughly, roughly 2,022 years since what? Since the birth of Jesus. That says something about our society. I don't know what it says necessarily, but it says at least in theory that our society believes, or at least at one time believes, that the birth of this Jesus is a new beginning, a fresh start, a touchstone really to all of life. But if you were living in France, for instance, during the year 1793, this way of keeping time was thrown away. And they started to keep time from the date of the revolution. This too says something about French society at that time. And then there's the unofficial ways that we keep time. For instance, in Columbus, Ohio, we may celebrate New Year's Day as January 1. But we all know that New Year is when students start moving in. Or maybe for some of you, when the first kickoff happens at the shoe. That is really when the year starts. See, we arrange our time according to what we value, according to what we value the most. And so when God says, this is the beginning of your calendar, this is how you order time from here on out, God is saying, this is your identity. What is about to happen is who you are. We are His. Second, he gives them a true family. 
If you look at verses 3 through 4, God tells all of Israel to take a lamb without blemish per household. And if that house is too small, and I love this detail, team up with neighbors. It tells us that God uses people as well, a people. Individuals comprise a people, of course. But the Passover is not an individual snackable. It is a family meal. And God gives us true family, true community. And third, this passage is rich with symbolism of earth. My wife has been actually studying Exodus this summer, and she shared with me an insight given by Bible teacher Jen Wilkin that in many ways the book of Exodus is like the delivery of a child. They enter new life, they're birthed, but not without birth pangs. And not without blood and water. In all of these ways, God gives Israel a new birth, a new identity, a new way to understand themselves. So Passover, I think, could answer the question, even for us, who am I, really? By shifting the question altogether, whose are you, really? Whose are you, really? The Passover says something quite profound, actually. The question is not, will we be serving somebody or something? The question is, is the person or thing or idea that we are serving true and good? Is it what we were made or purposed to serve? And we can say right away, I belong to And if you can say, I belong to the Lord, we can relax. If you can say, I belong to the Lord, then we know that he has bought us and brought us to himself. And we can have the peace that maybe some of you are looking for even this morning. The Passover gives us a true identity. But secondly, the Passover gives us a true security. And to see this, all we need to do is consider the word Passover. The Lord's justice passes over those who are sitting in a house marked by blood. And so my mind right away goes to tornado drills. Do you remember tornado drills as a kid? Now, I grew up in Indiana, rural Indiana, in what was called Tornado Alley. And I'm sure there's tornado alleys everywhere. And maybe it wasn't a real tornado alley, but that's just what we told ourselves. Who knows? But we did tornado drills all of the time especially at school. And so we were told to find a sturdy doorframe. They alone are secure. Well, according to verses 4 through 13, as we heard it read, God said that the most secure place to be on this night, of ter- this terrible night of divine judgment, is under a doorpost marked with blood. And God assures them in verse 13, and I'm quoting, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you. To destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then Moses relays this message urgently to all of Israel in verses 21 through 27. And so I think we can learn two things about true security from this alone. And the first is this. That the blood of the lamb protects us from God's enemy. This is how God executes judgment against Egypt. This is how God redeems at the same time or rescues Israel from oppressive slavery. 
This is God's justice. And so it shows you how committed the true God is to the pursuit of justice and how jealous he is to rescue the downtrodden. But secondly, the blood of the lamb also protects us from God as enemy. See, on the one hand, Israel has a special relationship to God, but that doesn't mean that they are without sin or rebellion themselves. Just read the rest of the Old Testament to discover that truth. They too need some kind of security from God's own indiscriminate justice. I really like how Christopher Rice says it. Although the emphasis in this passage of Exodus is strongly on Israel as a sin against victims of horrendous injustice. They were far from being sinlessly innocent themselves. In other words, they too need the blood of the Passover, the Passover lamb to protect them from God's holy justice. When I was in Krakow, Poland a couple weeks ago, the entire team of couriers that I was with were walking down the streets of the old city and it started to rain and I happened to be standing by the director. And this is one of those organized people that carry backpacks with umbrellas in the drink holder section of their backpack. Any of you out there like they have an umbrella with them at all times? I commend you. I think you're amazing. That's not me. But I got to stay dry on this walk. Why? Because I was next to him and I stood under the umbrella. I know that's kind of an insulting illustration to our intelligence, but it helps me. It helps me. It helps me understand that I did not deserve to be dry. I did not deserve it. I did nothing to prepare myself to be dry. I just took shelter in the gracious provision that was next to me. That's all I did. And this is the Passover to all of Israel. They didn't deserve security from God's enemy or God as enemy. But they were given gracious provision. And it was just up to, them, up to them to take shelter as an evidence of their faith in that provision. I try to imagine what it must have been like to sit in that house that night. Looking at these strangely newly painted door frames. And taking it by faith. This God that Moses is talking to. This true God will stay true to his promise. And he did. And he does. The Lord offers true security in the Passover. By the way, this is why a lot of churches, if you were wondering, have red doors. It's a call out to the Passover. It says, may all who enter this space experience the protection and the mercy that Jesus as the true Passover lamb provides. Would you be secure? Secure as ever in this space. May we as a church hope be a red door church. Would we be humble, understanding that there's nothing in us that deserves this protection? Would pride and would sort of that spirit that can take over in church houses of knowing it all or of being holier than thou, would all of that go away? Why? Because we are under a red door that we did not provide. Would we be cross-shaped as a church? Hope would we be shaped like the cross? Because we know that without the cross, we have nothing. And so as those who have everything from the cross, would we ourselves be shaped like the cross so that all who enter this space would receive and experience a community that is not climbing to the top, 
but is washing feet. That is giving up, giving up preferences. And would we be a generous church? We have everything we need in this space. We are marked with the blood of Jesus on our doors. We have everything we need. That enables us to be generous. We're not clinging white-knuckled to our life. We're not clinging white-knuckled to the things in our life, to our time, to anything else. Why? Because we have everything in this space. And so we can leave this space on mission, a generous mission. See, the Passover answers the haunting question. I think that all of us have, which is this, am I safe? Am I really safe? And I would argue, if you find, if you search for safety in any other place than behind the red door, it itself will enslave you. It'll be a new form of bondage and insecurity. So find it. Find it in the blood of Jesus. Which takes us finally to our last point here, which is this. The Passover gives us a true purpose. Remember, true freedom is tied to purpose. We talked about that with the Trek bicycle. True freedom for that road bike is riding really fast on a pavement road. Not, not roughing it at Tarpey Woods. Just ask our bike mechanic. It's, not, it's just not freedom for that bike. We tried to take it in to get it fixed, and he looked at it, and he was just like, it was like DOA, you know? There's no way. But we're like, it's track. It's track. He's like, sorry. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. This thing is destroyed. No, that thing was not free. That thing was in bondage. It was being destroyed because it wasn't aligned to its true purpose. And true freedom, because it's tied to purpose, it means that true purpose in our life, we need it. And if we don't have it, then we will remain in bondage. And I believe that we catch a vision of true purpose in the Passover in two profound ways. Number one, we are given the freedom to change and to change precisely into the kind of people that God created us to be. Into the image of Jesus. In verses 14 through 20 in the text we read, Israel is given the feast of the unleavened bread. Remember that? The Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The big idea was that Israel would relive the Exodus miracle every single year with a liturgy, which was a week-long Feast of Bread that was importantly without what? Leaven. And this became a powerful image for the new life in Christ that we all have, according to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul takes this image and he applies it to his church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 says this. Your boasting is not good. Corinth was a city in which it was much like any contemporary city today, uh, where we are sort of living by our promotions and how we're viewed by others. And we're always sort of vectoring out, how are they receiving me? And, And am I climbing or am I going down? And you always want to climb. And so that was true in Corinth. It's true here today. And Paul just says, that's not good. That's, that's like the old way. It needs to go. That's not, that's not good. That's, that's the way of Adam. Remember, Jesus is your representative. You're in Christ. That's not the way of Jesus. But here's how he goes on. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And this is when all my bread making hobby, like it sort of is like redeeming itself right now. <laughs> Besides making tasty bread. 
He goes on and says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump of dough as you really are unleavened. Paul's saying, you're unleavened. I'll say, you, hope, are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Amen? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. During the pandemic, most of my friends did one of two things, or both. Obtained a dog, including me, and started making sourdough bread. Anybody? I know you're out there. Sourdough? Any breadheads out there? No? No breadheads. Okay. I know you're out there. Because you gave me your starter. (laughs) See, the romance of sourdough is maintaining the yeast starter. It becomes a pet. It becomes almost as complicated as keeping a dog. So in many respects, those two things go right along with each other. This is often called, this yeast starter is often called the mother. This is the mother. Respect your mother, right? Respect your mother. This is a bowl of sticky, smelly dough that is sometimes decades old. In fact, I read that Chef Sarah Papa has a starter from 1848. Her mother, her starter, her sourdough yeast starter is from 1848 from the city of Milan. That's impressive. And it's a closely guarded asset in sourdough kitchens across the world and across the nation. Don't mess with my mother. That's what you would say if you are hiring a new chef in your kitchen. Do not mess with my mother. In fact, I read about a renowned sourdough bakery, a new employee accidentally washing out the mother. Yeah, I'm sure they got fired or at least they learned a lesson. That's like burning the whole business down, by the way. Why? Because you want your sourdough bread to be consistent. You want it to be the same as it was last year, as it was last decade, as it was, in Sarah Papa's case, last century. You want to keep the yeast. And that's great for change, or for sameness, but not great for change. If you want new bread, if you want a fresh start, you have to throw away the old mother. And that's how Paul applies the Feast of Unleavened Bread to his churches. The Lord, through Passover, gives us freedom to change. From slaves to sons and daughters. Our past sometimes feels like a, like a stinky sourdough starter, doesn't it? No matter what we do, I think sometimes we will always have a little bit of that old yeast with us. And so we're just sort of like, what do we do with this? Our old ways, our old habits, our old addictions. But God says in Passover, no, you can change. I give you a fresh start. And I give you freedom to change. I can, with Paul, tell you hope. Throw away the unleavened. Throw away the old leaven. Kick the mother to the curb. You can. And the parents, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then you're supposed to tell them as parents, 
It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And what we're supposed to see here in verse 25 is that word ceremony. Or in some of your translations, that word service. That word for service. What is this service? Is the word avodah in Hebrew. And this word was used to describe your demeaning slavery in Egypt. Time and time again. All you'd have to do is turn to Exodus chapter 1 verse 14. To see that same word avodah to be described as their demeaning slavery. But we have here this hint that what they are receiving by being rescued out of Egypt and to the Lord is a redemption even of work, of service. In other words, service to the Lord brings life and paradoxical freedom. Because we are truly free, we can spend our lives in service to God and to others and paradoxically experience freedom in doing so. I love this insight from Andy Wilson and Alistair Roberts. They write, free people, free people. Let me say that again. Free people, free people. If the Passover story is our story, they say, quote, we also live as those who have recently been released from centuries of oppression. If that's, if their story is our story, then that means we have a preferential option for the poor. In a commitment to champion the cause of those who have been abused, bullied, captured, disenfranchised, enslaved, forgotten, ghettoized, hated, ignored, judged, killed, lynched, marginalized, and so on through the alphabet. They go on, Exodus people know what it is to be ground into the dust by those with power. So whenever we see it happening to others, racial minorities, slaves, trafficked women, the poor, unborn children, refugees, the homeless, those with disabilities, sojourners, orphans, widows. We act, we march, we speak, we pray, we invite, we give. We use our power to serve the interests of those without it because the exodus was never just for us. See, they said free people, free people. This is our Freedom to serve. We now have a new service. We no longer serve false gods who oppress our services to the Lord. And that gives us freedom to serve. And it gives us freedom. True freedom. And to receive this, as we said, you must not need to prove yourself worthy. You must only find refuge under doorposts with the blood of another. And this time, it's not the Passover spotless lamb. But this time it's Jesus, the true Passover lamb. It's Jesus whose bones were not broken when crucified. It's Jesus whose death brings life. It's Jesus who, judge of all, stays the hand of his own justice on the cross to be judged in our place. It's Jesus who gives us new birth by his death. It's Jesus who conquers his and our enemies at the cross. It's Jesus who alone protects us at greatest cost to himself. And Jesus who is our Passover, our freedom. And so Lord, we come to you now as your freed people. 
And if we have never come to you now, Lord, we do so now. We actually drop all of our allegiances that are enslaving us at this very moment. And we come to you to experience and to have and to receive the freedom we all want and need. We bring it now to you, our empty hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.